from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no man can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Please keep your finger in that place because we're going to be really spending most of our time in this lesson this morning dealing with that particular passage. But in the meantime, I express my deep appreciation for your presence here this morning and for those who have joined us online. We do have quite a number of people who are absent this morning, and I suppose that's because um, uh, of the 4th. That's, that's tomorrow. I just Today's the 3rd, so tomorrow's the 4th. Y'all see what I did right there? Okay. Did math in the pulpit. And uh, we, our prayers are for those who are traveling now. And for those of you who will be traveling, we'll be praying for your safe return as well. If you don't mind writing or highlighting in your Bible, I would encourage you to, to, to underline or, or, or underscore four words that J.L. just read in this text. Number one, make sure it's your Bible. And then secondly, these are the four words that I really want us to emphasize in the study this morning. And they're the words grace, and then saved, and then faith, and works. Those really are extremely important words that we're going to be focusing on for the next few minutes. And we also need to appreciate that the overall meaning of the passage in its entirety is that salvation is the gift that is brought by grace that is mentioned in this passage. If we miss the fact that this is a salvation passage, then I think we've really missed why Paul wrote it in the first place. Grace, as you well know, means unmerited or unearned favor, as opposed to the concepts of justice or mercy. Someone has said that mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve and grace is when you uh, do get what you don't deserve. And I think that that's a proper distinction. So we understand what grace means in the secular world. I mean, when an insurance policy is extended for a period of 30 days, even though you haven't paid the premium, then that's called a grace period. It's something that you haven't earned. You haven't, it's not owed. It's not deserved. It is something that is simply given. And I think in a very real sense that that is what grace is in the spiritual realm as well. So through God's grand goodness, he has, Paul says in this passage, extended his grace to mankind. But the question I want us to ask and hopefully answer satisfactorily this morning is exactly how does a person accept this wonderful gift of God? How is it that we go about receiving the benefits of God's amazing grace that we just sang about? Well, first, it is not irresistible grace. I think it's important that we note that. This is not irresistible grace as taught by John Calvin and those who follow him, but it is available grace. Please appreciate that important point. So by the grace of God, Christ tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 says... But then Paul wrote in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That indicates that while salvation has been offered or granted to us by the grace of God, 
that that does not mean, as many people believe, that there is nothing for us to do in the process of receiving his grace and being saved and having our sins washed away and remitted. So Paul is telling us there is something. You need to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have a part to play, even though our salvation is by God's grace. I think that's a great misunderstanding that is prevalent in our world today. Exactly what is grace? And when many people see or hear that word, they almost immediately go to the mistaken conclusion that that does mean that there is absolutely nothing that we can do in order to to receive God's grace. There's nothing that God requires of us at all in terms of human interaction. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning of the church, you may remember on the day of Pentecost in Acts the second chapter, when those people wanted to know what to do in order to be saved from their sins, they were told what to do, that is repent and be baptized, Peter said. And then they're admonished in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, save yourselves from this wicked or perverse generation. So Peter is telling them and us that yes, there is something that you can do, There is something that you need to do in order to appropriate the forgiveness of God. You need to save yourself. That is, you need to take personal responsibility for obeying the commands of God, specifically in this context, to repent and be baptized in order to have your sins remitted. The contraposition, I think, of that statement is also true. If you don't repent, if you're not baptized, then you will not receive the forgiveness of your sins. And so that's just logical. So when it comes to salvation, there are three positions that people take in regards to how we may appropriate the grace and the forgiveness of God. Consider those three positions with me in turn this morning, and then the lesson will be yours. The first idea is one that we've already been talking about, and that's the idea that some say that salvation is by grace only. Once again, there's nothing that we can do is the idea. Here's a quotation from a book. Sometimes I reference quotations. I'm not doing that this morning by design. Because I do not want to give either the book or the author that kind of free publicity. Because here's what he says, and I'm quoting. The Bible teaches that salvation from sin results from the grace of God. So far, I'm with you. But then he adds the word, alone. Let me start over. The Bible teaches that salvation from sin results from the grace of God alone. Totally and completely apart from any human activity. Now you've lost me. Some teach that grace is like a somewhat of a supernatural get-out-of-free card that we can present at the gate on the day of reckoning. And so God is going to, because of his grace, just absolve all sin, no matter whether or not we've done what he has told us to do in order to appropriate that forgiveness. Others teach that grace means that God will grade on the curve, and that grace means that God is going to overlook what we've chosen not to do, what we have chosen not to obey. So if I just didn't like that part of whatever it was that he told us to do, I can just ignore that and God's grace is going to cover that when the day comes for me to stand and be judged by God. Others teach that grace means that we're not under any kind of law at all in this the Christian dispensation. In other words, it's like a song that, that made its round some years ago in the, in the uh, contemporary Christian contemporary music scene. And, and three or uh, four lines in that song go like this. Thank God, thank God for his everlasting grace. Without my doing anything, 
my sins he will erase. That's what I'm talking about. There are those who teach that God's being saved by God's grace means by God's grace only. That there is nothing that we need to do or that we must do in order to receive the benefits of that grace. Think about that. If, if, the, if the words of that song were correct, then there would be universal salvation. Everybody would be saved. Because after all, there's nothing that we need to do in order to be saved. So guess what? Then all of us, all of us would be saved in the end. Because the Bible teaches that God's grace has been extended or offered to, to all people. That's Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. But doesn't the Bible also tell us that not everybody is going to travel the straight and the narrow road that leads to salvation? Matthew chapter 7 verse 14. The answer to that question is an absolute yes. Doesn't Paul affirm in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9 that those who know not God and obey not the gospel are going to be banished from God's presence in eternity? Once again, the answer is an emphatic yes. The Bible teaches those things, that there are some things that we need to do in keeping with the simple conditions of pardon set forth in the gospel in order to be in a right relationship with God. That's why we're here this morning. I know that's why I'm here. And I assume that's why you're here. We're interested in being saved. We're interested in salvation. We want to go to heaven. And we want everybody that we know to go to heaven as well. But we need to make sure that we're doing and teaching what God has said in his word that is necessary for us to get there. Calvinists teach that even before the foundation of the world, God chose those who would be saved and those who would be lost. And that those two lists have been set in stone even before God set the planets in motion. So... I hope you're on that list that is on the list to be saved. But that takes all the responsibility away from man. If this doctrine is correct, there's nothing that we can do to affect our salvation one way or another. You know, that particular teaching defies logic as well as what the Bible teaches on the subject. The idea that you can't do anything good that will help you be saved And on the other hand, there isn't anything that's bad enough that would ever cause you to be lost. You know, you don't have to thumb through many pages of the Bible to find passages that teach us the opposite of that. But Paul said, God will render to every man, watch this carefully, according to his deeds. That's Romans 2 and verse 4, if you want the Bible for it. According to our deeds. So what we do is going to be a large part of the judgment process when we stand before God. Not only did Christ die for all the human race, but everyone is invited to come to him for salvation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. I think it's significant and wonderful that in the very last chapter of the Bible, we find that passage that says, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. So as opposed to the concept of Calvinism, who's going to be lost? Whosoever won't. Whoever it is that decides that they're not going to accept that invitation and do what God told us to do in order to be saved. I think these passages and many more prove that salvation is not and cannot be by grace alone. Here's the second idea that I want us to think about for just a minute. And that is some teach that salvation is by faith alone. And I imagine if you've been a student of of scripture or theology for any period of time, you've heard of that doctrine. And and that should be settled, I think, forevermore by just one verse of Scripture. James chapter 2, verse 24 reads like this. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith 
only. You'd have to have help to misunderstand that. Some allege that we have taken that verse out of context. But no, we haven't. In fact, I would encourage anybody who has a problem understanding what it is that James is saying in James 2 verse 24, that they read the entire chapter. In fact, read the entire book. It won't take very long. And see that that is the emphasis that James gives to the matter of salvation throughout that five-chapter book. So the theme of the whole chapter, particularly chapter 2, is faith without works is dead, being alone. And James really hammers that home in verses 17, 20, and 26 of that chapter. So we're even told in verse 19, we mentioned this last week, that even the demons believe and tremble. So faith in that sense, just what you know alone is not sufficient to save you. Let's notice one other passage before we leave this point. While our Lord was on earth, it was said, this is John chapter 12, by the way, if you want to follow along. John 12, verses 42 and 43. It was said that nevertheless, I'm quoting now, among the the chief rulers, also many believed on him. You may be familiar with this passage. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Here's why. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Once again, John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. So here was a group of people who believed on Jesus. I I believe that the passage means exactly what it says. They, They believed that Jesus was who he claimed he was. And so they had that spiritual confidence that about the, the identity of Jesus, that he was in fact the son of God. But then again, they did not have enough confidence in him and have enough faith in him to follow him because of their, their fear of what others would say. I'm, I wonder how many people in our present modern world are, are just like that. They believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but it's not a popular time right now to be a Christian, is it? And that's what these people were thinking. Yes, we believe in Jesus, but we're not going to confess him because we're afraid of of peer pressure. So clearly their belief alone did not put them into a proper relationship with God. That's the point of, of noting that passage. In fact, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter nine, verse 26, for whoever will be ashamed of me and my words of him shall the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his own glory. So it doesn't really matter what you believe. If you're not courageous enough and assured enough and willing to confess your belief that Jesus is who he claimed to be and to do everything that he tells us to do in order to be saved, there is no chance of salvation. It's that simple. It's a black and white issue. So mark it down. Faith only will not save anyone. Here's what the Bible says instead. Jesus Christ is the author or instigator of salvation to all them that obey him. Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Here's the third concept. And it's the one that the Bible teaches and authorizes. That salvation is by faith, which then prompts action or obedience on man's part. Here's a passage to consider in that regard. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, by the way, you need to know, that a large part of the content of that letter has to do with the concept of Judaism. That there were those who had come into Galatia and were teaching that in order to be a good Christian, you first had to be a good Jew. You had to go back and to observe and and be regulated by the old law. So in chapter 5, verse 6, as Paul is winding down that book, he says this, neither circumcision or uncircumcision avails anything. Listen especially to the second half of the verse. But faith 
which works through love. How do we demonstrate our faith? It's by works. What should it be motivated by? By our love for God and our desire to do his will. So faith that works through love, Paul says, is the means by which we can get into a proper relationship with God. That's important. A person who does not obey cannot be saved. Once again, it's that simple. Jesus in John 14 in verse 15 said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's clear enough, isn't it? If I really love the Lord, doesn't matter what I say, doesn't matter how many verses of that I may sing in a Sunday morning worship assembly, only if I obey him have I demonstrated by my actions that I really love him. So when our text says, back to Ephesians chapter 2, I hope you've still got your Bible or at least your finger in your Bible in that place. When our text says, not of works lest any man should boast, it's eliminating all works of man's invention. It's also eliminating works of the law of Moses or just doing good works of meritorious value. That is, in order to earn or deserve my salvation. Now, please note that a person cannot be saved just by doing good works. That's Paul's whole point in this passage. Let me say that again. A person can't be saved just by doing good works. A person can live a thousand lifetimes and still not be able to accumulate enough good works So that in the day of judgment, we could say, I have earned salvation. I deserve this. Nobody will ever find themselves in that position or in that mindset and go to heaven. Good works, however, are to accompany and follow our salvation. That's what verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2 says. God has created us for good works. And so that ought to characterize our lives as Christians as we walk in his footsteps. We should be involved in good works, but never be deceived that those good works will earn your salvation. Again, Paul is, is really hammering that point home. So when we obey the commands of the gospel, then we're working the works of God, prescribed and commanded by God, and not our own works. According to, to Jesus, even faith is a work of God. It's one thing for me to say that. It's another for, for me to prove it. Turn for a moment, if you will, to John chapter 6. I want to read two verses. John chapter 6, and listen to the words of Jesus himself. This is verses 28 and 29. By the way, we're picking up mid-conversation. That kind of explains the abruptness of uh, the beginning of verse 28. Then they said to him, that's Jesus, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Isn't that the question that we've had under consideration all morning? And so they've asked that very question. How do we show that we are doing the works of God? Jesus answered, verse 29, and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Jesus says that even faith in that sense is a work. And so if I believe mistakenly that all works will eliminate my possibility of being saved, and therefore I don't need to do anything, there's nothing that I can do in order to be able to get into a proper relationship with God, then I've also eliminated faith, and that which proves too much proves nothing. Now that's not something that God does for us, but it is something that God has commanded us to do. And that includes our our faith. That is a work of God. Repentance, confession, and baptism. Those are all works of God. And they're all commands that we must obey. 
Now, some have tried to say that God's grace eliminates the need for baptism because in their view, baptism is an operation or a work of man. But of all the commands, and I'm sure you've thought about this, but I want you to think about it one more time. Of all the commands that we just mentioned in regards to being in a right relationship with God, uh, the repentance of our past sins, the confession of our faith in Jesus as God's son, our, our baptism, of all of those things, baptism is the only passive act on the list. Baptism is the only one of those things that is done to us and not by us. And so why anyone would pick out baptism as an act of man that negates the grace of God is beyond me. So when a person has believed and has repented and has, com- has confessed and submitted to baptism, Paul says that doesn't give him any room to boast or to feel proud of his own accomplishments. He's just working the works of God by doing the will of God in his or her life. You know, the Bible teaches on every page that saving faith will always cause a person to obey. It's not just a mental assent thing only. It's not just what I believe about God. It's what I do in regards to or in relation to what I believe about God that's important. Last week, in fact, we looked at Hebrews chapter 11 at length. And we read about people who were blessed by God because of their great faith. And we noticed that in all the names that you will find in Faith's Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11, every one of those names is followed by a verb of action. Those people demonstrated their great faith in God by what they did. Don't miss that, church. That is so critically important. Let me give you two quick examples of that. In verse 7, the Bible says that Noah and his family were saved by faith because they, built a, they prepared an ark to the saving of his family. Noah did something. God told him, here's what you need to do, and he did that. He obeyed God, and therefore he is now being extolled and commended for his great faith. And then down in verse 30, it talks about the walls of Jericho. It's almost as if God has anticipated the misunderstanding in our present world because he says that that city was given to them by faith. So that means they didn't have to do anything. No, no, no. Even in this passage, besides the Old Testament account, the walls of Jericho fell down by faith after they were compassed about seven days. The Israelite people definitely had to do something in order for the walls of Jericho to fall down. One more passage for your consideration. This is drawn from the Old Testament. Psalm 119 verse 172 says that all of God's commandments are righteousness. Who then is, right, is a righteous person by God's definition? Listen to John for the answer. 1 John 3, 7 says, He that does righteousness is righteous. Again, that's pretty clear, isn't it? To make the point even clearer, he then says in verse 10, Whosoever does not righteousness is not of God. So the line of demarcation, clearly, it's between obedience and disobedience. If I'm obeying God, I'm doing his will in every aspect of my life to the very best of my ability, then I'm acting in faith. But for whatever reasons, no matter what my motive might be, if I am not doing God's will, then I am not a righteous person. And neither of those passages sound very much like salvation has nothing to do with human activity or obedience, does it? God offers his salvation to man. And this salvation, I want us to know, is made possible only because of God's amazing grace. Derek, I appreciate us singing, by the way, singing all the verses of amazing grace because I don't, I don't sing most of those verses. 
especially the verses that, uh, that we normally don't sing, became even more meaningful to me this morning. But it's because of that, of that amazing grace that any of us are here and can say, I'm, I'm a New Testament Christian this morning. I've had my sins washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? It's because of what you did. No, it's what you did in response to the amazing grace of God that puts you in a position where you can have that kind of blessed assurance. But God offers salvation by grace, and it needs to be accepted by faith. Faith that is demonstrated by obedience to those things which God has clearly commanded in his word. And here's the great wonder of it all, dear friends. God's marvelous grace has been extended to you and me. It's one thing for us to think about grace in terms of its universal application. I think it's a more wonderful thing to think about grace in terms of its personal application. God has extended his grace to all men, Paul said to Titus, and that includes us. It's a wonderful thing to pillow our head at night, knowing that by the amazing, powerful, wonderful, magnificent grace of God, we have an opportunity someday to leave this earth and to see the face of our Lord and to live with him throughout eternity. I hope and pray this morning that you will believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that you will willingly repent of all of your past sins and that you'll confess your faith in the Sonship of Jesus and that you'll be baptized into him for the remission of your sins. And it is only in that way that you or I or anyone else has any hope of being saved by the grace of God. And that's what we call you to this morning while we stand and while we sing.